Hey, Don. Hello, Zach. This week, you sent me an article from the New York Times. The article just sort of looked at the latest data that has come out of schools and kind of educational tests on a national level. They're trying to look at just sort of how did schools do during the pandemic and maybe what lessons can we learn from it? And here's the best paragraph I read. When COVID-19 began to sweep across the country in March 2020, schools in every state closed their doors. Remote instruction effectively became a national policy for the rest of that spring. A few months later, however, school districts began to make different decisions about whether to reopen. Across much of the South and the Great Plains, as some pockets of the Northeast, schools resumed in-person classes in the fall of 2020. Across much of the Northeast, Midwest, and West Coast, school buildings stayed closed and classes remained online for months. These differences created a huge experiment, testing how well remote learning worked during the pandemic. Academic researchers have since been studying the subject, and they have come to a consistent conclusion, remote learning was a failure. And Don, the article just goes on to cite some of the national tests that we can now kind of use as a comparison to see sort of what learning loss kind of looks like. What did you think about this article? Well, the real focus here is on the experiment that happened. And it wasn't an intentional experiment, but the results yielded an experiment. I mean, nobody could ever organize a study in which the independent variable was whether they're in school or not, and then create various levels of in school or not in school. But yet that's what happened through various communities, all working on their own judgments as to what was best. And the results were staggering. The kids that only lost the, a little bit of time in school lost 20% of their learning ability or learning achievement, whereas the kids who were mostly at home, they lost half. That's a ton. The disparity is huge, and it's not one that's going to be easily recovered. No, you're right. And it was definitely like, whoa, that's really interesting. I would love to see them drill down in that data more. I'd love to learn more about that. I'd love to learn what school districts are high poverty and not high poverty, what school districts have really good student attendance, which ones don't. I would love to just see more as we kind of look out as there's so many reasons why a test score can kind of come out the way it did. I'd also just be curious about you know, the kids that took the test, were they interested in taking the test and stuff like that? But at the same time, the numbers kind of don't lie here. And there is a major disparity here. Well, there's a nice chart there that is uh, shows a really strong correlation between not only the amount of time that they're out of school or how much time they were remote, but also the level of poverty and the kids who are impoverished and uh, remote for 60% of the school year lost almost 60% of their math loss, or I'm sorry, math achievement ability. I mean, it was truly, truly staggering. It makes sense because those in poverty probably have fewer resources to fall back on to help them make up for that lost learning, less tutors, less parents that have the time or the experience to help them catch up. But it's just staggering. And in this place, liberals that canceled school are their own worst enemy here because they're really hurting impoverished people and all kids really who were at home. And I think although it did save some lives, what we've learned from Europe and many other places is really not many lives were saved by having kids remote. Kids are pretty impervious to this uh, illness, but it did tremendously harm their learning. Well, and as we've seen from some of the elections that kind of came out last fall, and I'm sure maybe we'll get some exit reactions during the elections in November, but people really seem to hold school leaders accountable and, and political leaders accountable, those that were, that were pushing remote learning, not only obviously from the 
learning loss, but also just from the loss of lifestyle that people had to endure, right? People maybe couldn't go back into the workforce. So they were forced to work remote and they were being asked to make changes and school districts were constantly being asked to make changes. And then they were trying to communicate as best they could to families, but it was never very good. And people had to make choices. And I just think the level of frustration that people just felt for that entire year obviously is something that a lot of people still feel. I think a lot of people in some ways want to just sort of forget that the year even happened. Yeah, there's a group that want to forget and there's a group that really want to blame somebody and hold somebody accountable. And that seems to have resulted in death threats to school board members that we're kind of friends of friends of. And I'm sure you've heard stories like that. But overall, I think the theme is we got this wrong. The Europeans didn't really cancel school much at all. They kept the schools going, but kept the bars and restaurants closed. Here, we were trying to do the opposite. Do you think, though, that that's a hindsight's 2020 sort of thing? As again, you read this article, and it is kind of sobering of, wow, look at what happened. I just always go back to, in the moment, though, people were scared. And people didn't know how to think about a lot of this stuff in terms of COVID. And I think the media love to just put up case numbers all the time. And, you know, without the idea of, well, how many of that were like hospitalizations, for instance. And a lot of people were kind of terrified of this thing, especially when you think that the school year for 2020 began without vaccines being available and stuff like that. I think people just kept hoping that would sort of be the silver bullet. And then I also just go with like the sort of pandemic theater that we were sort of doing. I mean, you and I were wiping desks all last year, even though we kind of knew that's not really how COVID is going to spread. And ironically, we had to ask kids to leave our classrooms so they could then crowd up uh, with each other in the hallway so that you and I could then clean the desks. I just think about all the things that we did in terms of, you know, having kids in classrooms, that's fine. But we knew that we couldn't put them six feet apart. And yet we had sort of these guidelines that nobody could actually follow. And I think it just spooked a lot of people. And at the end of the day, I think people were looking at this as just a bigger issue and just saying, I guess education is just going to have to be second. No, you're absolutely right. This is 100% hind hindsight bias. Like it, it makes sense in hindsight. At the time, all of us were very nervous and very scared. And I remember being not so much concerned for my own well-being, but certainly there was coworkers I was really concerned for that they, if they caught it, they didn't have the right attributes to allow them to handle it well. And it turned out that it went okay. That said, there's some schools that are still not doing things. In Ann Arbor, they didn't do winter sports, at least wrestling. They didn't do it this year. And that's still holding kids back from doing things that they can do, participating in activities that many others are participating in. I think there's probably a school district somewhere that's still closed. It's not over and it needs to be over. And we need to be having kids interacting and going back to school and trying to catch up for this lost learning. Now, that's a really good kind of thought is, are there any schools still closed and are going remote right now? I know that, like, I've heard of some charter schools that have had to close down for a couple of weeks here or there just because like they had, they had too many staff out. But I'm just curious, are there still some schools that are setting their policy? And I guess my question would be, I'd be very curious to hear what their leaders have to say in that, is that what their community wants. Uh, our hero, Tyler Cowen, I remember last spring, he had just sort of an interesting blog post where he just kind of said, everybody seems kind of happy with their COVID policy locally. He just kind of, you know, juxtaposed Florida and San Francisco and how Florida's relatively remained open, schools are open, and everybody's pretty happy with just kind of how life is continuing down there. And at that time, San Francisco was relatively shut down, still remote. 
And most people still seemed okay with it in San Francisco. Now, I know later on, people really started to get tired of it, but I just thought that was interesting that kind of where you lived seemed to relatively reflect kind of maybe your values and what you wanted from your schools. Oh, absolutely. That's true. And um, ultimately, I mean, most is uh, probably an, a correct statement, but it underestimates the amount of upheaval and upset people there were. But yes, most people got what they wanted. And if you could look at Ann Arbor, where my kids, my brother's kids go to school, it was far more conservative in terms of COVID protocols and closing and whatnot, far longer than Oakland County. And Oakland County is kind of a purple area and Ann Arbor is very, very, very blue. That you could just see people got what they wanted. And I guess that's the way democracy is supposed to work, right? At the local level, we're getting our, the rep- what we want. Now, we do know that power tends to come from the elite, and therefore you do wonder how many of the voiceless were just kind of not listened to and stuff like that, right? And maybe we say, oh, this is what the people of San Francisco schools wanted. Well, maybe it wasn't, though, either. Yeah. And well, ultimately, a couple of their school board members were called and they were forced to make changes that they had just a little bit gone over the top on their caution level and their uh, maybe response to other issues. But it did end up it is coming around. And uh, I think you're going to see a lot of change on school boards. I know some school uh, one of my school board members left for personal reasons, but I think you're going to see some turnover here as people go after those school board members and want change that weren't happy. With some success or maybe not. Well, I can't even remember. I mean, imagine being a school board member in that it seemed like every two weeks people were just teeing off on them from both sides. And it just seemed like a lot of those meetings got real nasty. You know, that's just got to be hard when you, you realize like these people are, I know that they wanted the job, but you know, they're still volunteers to be there. It's not like they're getting money for it to be kind of thrust into that where there's just no solution that's going to make a majority happy. Oh, yeah, I can't imagine that. I applied to be a school board member once when there was an opening and didn't get it. And I'm very thankful that I did not because it's a tremendous amount of time that's selfless and really can be rough. And I know from other school board members I've talked to that they're getting death threats about masks and death threats about this and that. I mean, that's just way too much for a position that's an unpaid, unprotected volunteer doing for public service. Well, one of the things I was wondering about is, okay, so they said the schools that were only, the schools where kids were only shut down for just a little bit, they lost 20% of learning. Schools that were shut down for most of the year, 50% loss. I guess my question is, will they be testing these same students every year to see if we've closed the gaps or something like that? Do they have any plans for that? One of the interesting things they kind of talked about in this article is that school districts right now apparently are kind of flush with money. Uh, There was a ton of government money that was allotted to them. They have a lot of money, although people in the article were kind of voicing concern with, look, we know the best way to close gaps is with basically individual tutoring, getting people a body on a body to just help kids get them going. However, we're worried that a lot of schools are using this money to just buy technology and stuff like that. Oh, yeah, I think that um, there was a lot of federal funding out. And clearly, they're going to test the kids every year because they have to. We have to test every kid every year as part of federal law. So we're going to do that. And hopefully some economists and whatnot track the data. In terms of the money, yeah, well, the districts, they know what their needs are. And they're going to try and fit their needs. And my understanding in talking with our superintendent is that very rarely do you get money from government that does not have an earmark, that doesn't say you have to use it for this or that thing. And so this COVID dollars were just, you can use it on anything. 
and they had some very specific needs they wanted to go for and they could use it for that. And there was a flexibility there. And ultimately, if I'm a school district, and I know the roof's about to leak and that's going to inhibit the way kids can learn because they won't be safe. There'll be mold and so forth. Fix the damn roof. That, that's what makes the most sense, right? Yeah. No, you, you make a good point. I, I think I think that's what's interesting is when something comes out like this and says, well, this is what we know in terms of how to decrease learning gaps. I almost wonder, do you think school districts should be required to you know, put on their website sort of how are they spending their COVID money and, and to be as transparent as possible? Or do you say, no, like, you're right. A leaky roof is a leaky roof. Like that's got to get, that's got to get fixed as well. Well, they, at least in Michigan, they have to have their budgets posted on their website. And if somebody wants to wade through that labyrinth, they can, but yeah, that, that is out there. And if it needs to be fixed, you got to fix it. I mean, I like the one-on-one tutoring thing, but it doesn't necessarily mean the teachers are willing to do the tutoring. That was offered at the high school where I taught and some people volunteered to do tutoring after school for 50 bucks an hour and some people didn't and I volunteered and it was okay, but I wouldn't volunteer every day and I wouldn't also that doesn't mean the kids are necessarily that need it most are going to take advantage of more school oftentimes they're the ones that want to get out of school the worst or have the least attendance or have the most demands on their time at home caring for siblings or whatnot. That's a really good point to try and get those students to the extra help might be just as big of a challenge and stuff like that. One of the things that I sort of was thinking about when I read this article is you and I love longitudinal studies. I just sort of was wondering, like, what else would you want to know now that we are back in session? As they said, this is kind of a great experiment that nobody wanted to plan, but it just happened. And now we can get data because one of the things that I sort of would like to know now is Basically, what school districts have taken away student laptops since they've come back in person and which districts have, you know, are trying to now run their classes out of laptops. And I can see pros and cons of using laptops. I I will say that I constantly am struggling with the distraction that they are for kids. And therefore, I'm not sure if they are bringing huge learning gains. So I'm just kind of wondering, like, do you think we should be studying that as well? Well, there was research before this about one-to-one technology, and there was some interest in that and some ideas that that was the panacea to solve education and others arguing no. Um, I don't know if they're following it as quickly as much as they should as they should be or could be, but that's an interesting one. I know in my experience, I've found that the students learn best with their laptops closed and off. It's a tool to create content and to look at a, other students' work and to interact with other students but it's a tremendous distraction when it's open. They can look for anything, Zach. Why would they listen to monetary policy? I know. Trust me, I I guess I wasn't that interesting teaching about Julius Caesar this year. And yes, that's just it. And I just, we came back and yet we never really asked ourselves, are we sure we want to have computers just up and available to kids all the time. And I get it. Every teacher can make their choices as to how they want to run their class. And there are benefits to it. But I just wondered if maybe we should be having that hard conversation. I have not heard that discussion mentioned, but that's one we should be having for sure. The other thing that I just sort of wondered about is I would love to somehow, could we go back to this national testing data that they got? And could we measure the learning loss based upon those students who maybe were on camera the whole time during remote learning (laughs) and, you know, trying to show engagement. I'm not sure if you can always show engagement, but is there a way of like, Hey, 
these students had, you know, 90% on camera engagement, and therefore they were going through it. I'd be curious if their learning loss was as great as somebody who, you know, turned the camera off and just went and played video games in their bedroom um, and stuff like that. Yeah, I got to imagine that's the case. That's a lot harder one to track. And uh, even some kids are on camera, you could pretty much tell they had it on mute in their phone there and they're watching a video on Netflix or whatever. It's uh, that's a tougher one to measure. I did think that like the ability to interact with kids and get them on camera or even get them on the phone or interact, that was the uphill battle. There's a district in California being sued because they tried to reach special ed to students and they, they recorded how many times they tried to reach them, not whether or not they actually reached them. And then district is arguing like, look, we tried to reach them, but they weren't there. They had moved. They weren't responding to calls. We couldn't go in person and how hard this was to interact and really reaching out to those kids has been a challenge. I think when they're in our rooms every day and they're forced to reckon with the fact that we're there, we're physically close to them and we're asking them to put away their devices so they can interact with us. That's huge. And I think that was underestimated all along, but the interaction between the teacher and the student that brings this learning to fruition is important. That's a really good point. In fact, that was one thing I just sort of written, written down was, is this a big win for public schools? In that, you know, I think for a long time, teachers have always just kind of gotten a bad rap for just being these lazy <laughs> people that just want to turn on a DVD and not actually engage with kids. And I feel like something that people don't realize is the teacher, as you were just saying, is in that room every day, trying their best to push, pull and drag students across the finish line. And so many teachers are willing to give kids second and third and fifth chances if that's needed or to do a retake if they screw up or to ignore, you know, some bad behavior the day before to get the kid going again. And again, I think the hardest thing about remote learning is we just expected all of these kids because they could go to a Zoom meeting that they would just know how to be students online. And I feel like that's the part that maybe we've really forgotten here. Well, I think you're right. The teachers get a lot more credit after that. But also, I think parents have a better knowledge of who their kid is. How many times do you hear some parent like, oh, my kid's not good at learning. They just won't pay attention. They don't try very hard. They're wandering their eyes around. They're not focused at all. They just struggle with online learning. And I want to tell them like, no, that's just your kid. That's how they interact. They act at school, but they're just in your face now. And they're just not good at learning. They have to be pushed, pulled and dragged into this. And that's who you have at your house. And now, you know, <laughs> that's true. Although to be honest, like it probably was really hard to be a student and have to try to be engaged, you know, hour after hour um, on a screen, you know, there's just something about getting up, moving around. And it's just hard. And also, you know, I don't think, I mean, our district and all school districts, I think did the best they could in terms of they had, I don't know, two and a half months to sort of prepare a whole online curriculum to take anything that, that they used to do and, and move it online. That, that in itself is, is sort of a feat. And you've talked about that before, but I, I would say, have we reflected enough on what worked and what didn't work in online? Because I guess my thing is, is I listen to this or I read this article and now I think, okay, so it looks like the, the bad thing is to close schools down. Well, theoretically, what about the next pandemic that we have? Does this mean that the, the policy is going to be keep schools open? Well, what if this is a more lethal pandemic? Like, I mean, are we going to even be able to have a, a civil conversation about what is the safest policy? 
Uh, that's a great question. I mean, I think that if it happens in the next five years and there's a lot of reactions and ideas and plans to take, a, take hold, but if it happens in 15 years, then you have an entirely new leadership at the state, local, school, and uh, national level. And now you have people trying to recreate the whale again. So I, I, that would be a real challenge. Because I found it interesting, obviously, this is the New York Times, and the New York Times, you know, does an interesting job with a lot of work and reporting, and this was a great piece of reporting, but I feel like this same sort of morning newsletter that, that comes out was often telling us the latest COVID numbers nationally, and there was usually a grim sort of tone to a lot of this reporting, and I just think that that grim sort of tone adds to how people feel about going out in public or sending their kids to public schools, and I just think it's interesting that they're reporting on this of basically this major failure. And I feel like they're kind of coming out saying, hey, you know, we got to keep the schools open next time. No, yeah, it's, it was there looking back and saying, uh, well, maybe they do need to be open because at the time they were sounding the alarm and saying who could ever be outside, who could be selfish enough to go out to the grocery store without a mask on. And now they're looking back and saying, yeah, but the kids need to be in school like they were in Europe, where they pretty much stayed in school for the most part. So it is a hindsight bias for everybody. And maybe they can look back and say, yeah, I thought this all along. Well, no, you didn't. But you felt like you thought that way. I always thought that like the schools should have just pitched a bunch of tarps and made lean tos and <laughs> did school outside for at least like the, the first two months in the fall or something like that. I'd be curious if did any school district do that and just run school outside for as much as possible? And I'd be just curious, how did their test scores shape up? I saw a big uh, tent out somewhere where people, they're doing classes outside in a big old tent. I think I was on a college campus. You know what I really thought of in the very beginning of this was I thought of going to Hiroshima and at the atomic bomb museum, there was a picture of teachers teaching class outside in Hiroshima after the bomb had dropped because the school was destroyed and the teachers kept on teaching and the kids that were alive came to school and stood outside and learned. And I thought, wow, they really were resilient to do that in Hiroshima. We didn't yeah. do any of that. We didn't do any of that. We, we didn't try to do that. We did. I mean, and you, I, I teach in a building that's right next to a state park with tons and tons of land. There was exorbitant space i could have put an easy up tent and taught to five ten kids at a time and easily done that that was not on the radar and i don't know if that's due to unions or districts but i don't even know if anybody did that don't get me wrong i mean it's easy to say in hindsight we should have done tents but i also just would have said and i think you and i talked about this on a previous podcast like did we really put everything on the table, if you know what I'm saying, in terms of there are no bad ideas here today. And let's let's really think this through. Let's listen to our community. What are they most stressed about? And maybe how can we make this work? At the same time, maybe there's a ton of issues that I'm not even thinking about with, uh, with that. But I just also would wonder, like, I don't know, did the schools that did that, if there are any, did they find better results? Yeah, well, I mean, there were different stages. There were stages where I had half my class in the room at a time. So instead of teaching 32 kids, I was teaching 16 at a time. And then the next day, the other 16 would come in. And then we progressed from that as numbers fell further and more people got vaccinated and people got more confident. I mean, we did try a lot of different things. And I know administration was stretched to the breaking point trying to figure this out. And there was a lot of effort in. I think this is good, falls along the lines. The better way to look at this and says, 
if it happens next time, this is something we could do. If it happens the next time, this is something we could do rather than we did it wrong. Cause I think people did the best they could. It's just didn't do things out of a ex- exorbitant level of caution. Well, I guess that's kind of my, my final thought or wonder here is then we read this. What are the lessons from all of this? Or sh- what should policymakers or citizens, uh, leaders in government, administrators, like what is it that they should take away from this? I had somebody say to me, like, look, you need to K8 is where we need to spend all our time or even K5 and has to have kids spread out in all the buildings and have the teachers come and talk to like, I can do reading lessons to a group of fourth graders or third graders. And maybe I only have five, but I'm meeting with five kids four times a week or five times a week and put all our energy into those lower level kids with the most to lose. And that the high school kids are a little bit to their own, but maybe that's what we should have done is really double down on the early L kids that are going to lose the most. That's an interesting idea. And again, that kind of goes with the tense of there are no bad ideas here. What about this idea? That's interesting. And obviously, Hey, we only have two and a half months to plan for anything and nobody's got a playbook for you to follow. I I guess you don't really know what to do. I think my biggest kind of concern now, and you and I were just talking a little bit ago about how you were talking with somebody that's just said, I'm over the pandemic and I don't want to talk about the pandemic anymore. And I get it. There is just a, a, a an exhaustion to the whole thing. But I do fear that, like, are we going to have some sort of like blue ribbon committee to, to find out exactly what happened here? And what are the lessons that we learned? I mean, I remember after like the 2000 election, for instance, there was a Senate committee that broke down exactly what happened everywhere. And then they made recommendations, which of course the government didn't follow, but at least they, they did the investigation so that we can get some answers. Same thing happened after 9-11 and there's all sorts of blue ribbon committees writing up all sorts of events. Don't you think we need that here? I feel like it's a bad move just to turn a blind eye to all of this. Yeah, what you're talking about reminded me most of the Pentagon Papers, which was a full analysis of the Vietnam War that was really in-depth and thorough and really figured out how everything went wrong and, of course, was promptly ignored before we invaded Iraq. But it did do a thorough analysis. I think, as you've mentioned with a couple examples in mind here, that most of these are ultimately ignored. But, um, yeah, we should probably look back at it. I think the point I was talking to my friend about was that, okay, the barn burned down. It's gone. We have no barn. Where are we going to put the kids? Where are we going to put the cows tonight? How are we going to have a shelter for the goats? Where are we going from here? It's not so much I'm done and I'm back to normal. It's I'm done. And where do we go from here? Where's our vision for the next thing? No, that's fair. I I think a lot of people are trying to figure that out. Are we still in a pandemic or are we done with the pandemic? And, you know, I do think though a lot of people have a sense of fatigue you know, it it just, I remember it used to be the only thing people talked about. And now it's almost like you'd never see anybody talking about it. We put our masks in the basement last week. We were done. They were right by the door. So you grab a couple masks before you headed out the door. And now they are put away, hopefully forever, but they'll be there. And somebody will ask us years from now, your grandchildren will come and ask you and say, Dad, I have a, uh, I have a grandpa. I got a, a, a school project on COVID nineteen. Can you tell me about it? And you can break out this podcast and tell her what you used to sound like. Sadly, when they ask, "Can you tell me about it?" they'll already be on their laptop ignoring me. <laughs> You're right. 
someday this will be a major historical event that we live through. Well, Don, it's been a pleasure talking with you this week, and I look forward to talking with you next week. Absolutely, Zach. Good times. Have a good one. Take care. Bye-bye.